So throughout the course of this year, we are experiencing what does it mean for us to be the kind of people where what we pray for in Psalm 23 is actually true for us, that my cup overflows, my cup runneth over with the goodness and with the mercy of God. And that as we are trying to go on that journey together, we have set out a whole vision and direction for the year. So we talked about the way of Jesus in January, and now we're talking about and focusing on prayer in this month as we are beginning to experiment and practice and use many of the same ways that Christians throughout the centuries have been able to discover how their life with God truly can be. And so throughout the course of the month in prayer, this is what we've been talking about. Who can pray? Last week, what is prayer? And today, we're going to talk about how to pray. It's interesting. The disciples never came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, will you teach us to preach the way that you preached? The disciples never came up to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, will you teach us to be able to perform miracles the way that you perform miracles? But there was a time when the students of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, saw Jesus do something, and they desperately wanted to learn how to do it. Luke chapter 11 in the first verse. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Where I want to begin today's message today is to have you turn to somebody next to you. I want to put this graphic up on the screen here. All kinds of different activities, hobbies, skills, sports, different things. Turn to somebody next to you and describe a time when you had to learn how to do something. Turn to somebody next to you. When did you learn how to do something? Ready, set, go. So I imagine there's a variety of different things. Some of you learned how to play a musical instrument. Some of you learned how to do a sport. Some of you learned how to do something in art or a particular skill that you use in your job. All of you, all of us know what it's like to actually have to learn how to do something. And one of the things you know from having gone through that experience is it wasn't automatic, right? I mean, certainly not at the beginning, that when you had to learn how to do something, you had to figure it out, dive in, roll up your sleeves, give it some effort, and over time, what began and seemed like it was impossible, over time became something that you began to do. I need you to hear me clearly that that is going to be true in prayer, that prayer is just like any other tool, skill, gift, opportunity that comes along that it's not automatic, it's not something that the lightning bolt hits you and it just happens, that prayer is something that is a learned behavior. I remember when I was in school, starting all the way in elementary school, working my way all through high school, every year starting in first grade, all the way through I was a senior in high school, I took Spanish every single semester and I hated it. I hated the fact that we had to work on 
grammar and conjugation and vocabulary. I didn't even like grammar and vocabulary in my native language of English, much less doing that in another language. And so I always dreaded going to Spanish class. And to kind of compound the fracture, especially when I was in junior high and in early senior high or early high school, I mean, our Spanish department at our school was like the Defense Against the Dark Arts department in Harry Potter at Hogwarts. It was like a rotating group of teachers. We never had the same teacher. Sometimes we'd start out a semester, we'd end a semester with a different teacher. Um, you know, there are many people who would say that we were so bad in that classroom that no teacher wanted to stay, but this is my narrative and I have the microphone and I'm telling you it's that these were bad teachers. <laughs> Until about halfway through high school, a woman by the name of Lida Meeks came to teach us Spanish. She loved the language, the culture, the food, the people, the art, the history, every dimension of it was alive within her. And by the time I got to my senior year of high school, Spanish wasn't my least favorite subject. It was my favorite subject. That the way that she taught was contagious. I remember coming up to her when I was a senior and I said, hey, I, something happened to me last night and I just don't know if it's significant, but I don't know who else to tell this. And she's like, what happened? And I said, well, I had this dream last night. And my dream was entirely in Spanish. <laughs> Huge grin on her face. And she said, Rich, you've just walked through the door of fluency. When you can dream in the language. It's been 35 years since then, and I've not spoken a word of Spanish since. <laughs> but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is there was a moment when I became fluent. And if I have a prayer, if I have an expectation, I have a hope for us as a congregation. As we walk through this month together, the hope is that you and I will start to become fluent in the language of prayer. And so the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, will you teach us to pray? And the response of that, I love how Max Lucado puts it. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, he gave them a prayer, not a lecture on prayer, not the doctrine of prayer. He gave them a prayer. And so what I want to invite you in for the remainder of our time is to invite you in to the master teacher of Jesus as he taught his disciples, his students to pray. And the tool, the means by which he did so was he gave them a prayer that we affectionately refer to as the Lord's Prayer. And this prayer that Jesus gave them to teach them how to pray begins with two words that says, Our Father. Now, what is not to be missed about this is that prayer always begins with an address, a to whom it may be concerned. And 
So one of the things that we just need to acknowledge what prayer is not and from the lips of Jesus is that prayer is not us shouting into the void of the emptiness of the universe in an effort to be heard. Neither is prayer just kind of some random psychobabble inner dialogue that's happening in a meditative way to make us feel better about ourselves. That is not what prayer is because prayer is this. It is communicating and communing with the living God. When we say our father, we think that there's somebody on the other end of this line. That, that we are actually talking with and spending time with someone. And that when we get to call God father, and Jesus does this hundreds of hundreds of times, and Jesus didn't pull it out of thin air because it's rooted in the Old Testament. We are getting to be able to say something that maybe you don't have a full appreciation of how radical, how revolutionary it is to be able to call God Father. And so when Jesus called Father, what did he mean by that? He meant a couple of things. One, from a variety of passages here, not only the formal term of pater in Greek, he also did the Aramaic word of Abba, which is more like Papa. In a variety of different ways, Jesus would refer to God as his Papa. You need to know that there's only two people on God's green earth that have the right and the privilege to call me Papa, which is what they called me growing up. And that's our two daughters. Any of you in this room can call me by my name. I'm going to look at you weird if you call me Papa. <laughs> they have a special status. They have a special kind of privilege in relationship. That's a way that they get to address me. So there is a certain measure of closeness of what happens in the way that they're able to talk to me that other people can't. When we get to call God Abba, when we get to call him Father... What is being given to us is the special status of being a part of God's larger family. And that you and I, by adoption, are heirs of the covenant. And what we have celebrated in baptism is true for each and every one of us, that we are beloved children of God. And that we get to approach God in that way. But it is simultaneously true that it's not just when we call God Father that it's we're expressing how close we get to be to God. At the same time, the Bible very clearly holds together the glory and the magnificent nature of God, particularly of God the Father as creator, God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And so like in the prophet Isaiah, one of the things we see is that like he's the potter, we're, we're the artwork. We, we find that just as God cares about all of the different dimensions that the heavenly father will care for the birds of the air and all the different aspects of creation. In John 15, we see the aspect of an image of God being like the gardener where Jesus uses wine imagery there over and over again. One of the things that is simultaneously true, which is amazing, is that you and I both have the privilege of being close to God at the same time it does not compromise God's holiness his otherness his greatness and his glory this is who God is hallowed be thy name the holiness of even the name of God we get to be close to God when we call him father and at the same time we get to be near the magnificence of God when we call God Father. Because he's the one that made everything. 
And the third dimension, which most people don't talk about and miss when we think about what did Jesus mean when he called God Father, is this whole other dimension here of being a part of a calling. If you and I get to call God Father, and if that means that we are a part of God's family, we don't get to be a part of this family without the responsibility and the privilege as well as the calling of what it means to be a part of that family. In Exodus chapter 4, when God is coaching up Moses at the burning bush about how he's going to go confront the most powerful figure in the world, he tells him, you are to go to Pharaoh, and you are to say, this is kind of one of the first main instances of father language in the Old Testament, is that you are to go to Pharaoh, and you are to say, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel is the child of God. And because of that, God was setting them on a purpose, on a mission, on a task, which is being completed and fulfilled by the inclusion of us into God's family as the church. So let me put it plainly this way. You cannot call God Father without also the accompanying responsibility of what comes along with being able to call God Father. That you and I, as Jesus says, the Father is sending me, so now I am sending you. We are on mission with God. You can't just call God Father and ask for the status of being a son, a daughter, without sharing in the task of what the family is for. You know, when, in the old rite, uh, when, when we do, whether it's Presbyterian, Episcopalian, whatever, all the different rites, when you do the full great, what's known as the great prayer of Thanksgiving, when you're welcoming people and you do the full liturgy of what can take like 10 minutes to do the invitation of the great drama, inviting people to the table for, for communion. What it says when you get ready to say the Lord's Prayer, as is God's followers in every time and in every age, we are bold to pray. If you have not come to terms with the audacious boldness of calling God your Father, you have never understood prayer. The closeness, the magnificence, the high and holy calling. And once we address God in this way, then Jesus coached up his disciples. He taught them that there were a series of petitions that they needed to pay attention to. They were simple phrases. This was not rocket science. This was not complex. It was easily accessible to them as it is to us. And the first thing that he taught them to to pray about was your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in the heavens. Now, this is what the kingdom of that world looked like that was advancing. It was known as the Roman Empire. And it was pervasive and it was everywhere and so the minute that they would have talked about kingdom they not only knew of what the pressing reality of what kingdom was like then they also knew that God was trying to establish the kingdom of Israel so that's language that they used on a regular basis kingdom language is not the language that we have a tendency to use all of the time so I find that for a lot of people when they pray the Lord's Prayer this part remains elusive to them But let me be clear, you have a kingdom, I have a kingdom, all of us have a kingdom, and there's lots of competing kingdoms in this world. Which kingdom are you a part of? 
Are you a part of the kingdom of the news, which is a kingdom of fear and anger? Are you a part of the kingdom of work and accomplishment and achievement and success? Are you a part of the kingdom of social media, which is primarily about envy and vanity? Are you a part of the kingdom of streaming, which is about amusement and stimulation? Are you a part of the kingdom of sports, which is about glory? There are all kinds of competing kingdoms in this world. Here's what you need to know. There's only one true kingdom that's going to last forever. And the invitation is, are we going to surrender to those kingdoms or are we going to surrender to the kingdom of God and of heaven? That kingdom is coming. Are we participating in it? Are we entering into it? Are we a part of it? Are you living in that already but not yet quality of that reality of that kingdom that is advancing in this world? And then Jesus said, not only you should pray about the kingdom, you should also pray to give us this day our daily bread. I want to show with you the, share with you the primary food group of when, when we were young parents. Our oldest daughter, Danica, was obsessed with goldfish. And I don't mean the whole grain kind of today. I mean the original goldfish. And when Danica would be in her high chair, she would uh, eat her balanced meal, but there'd always be some goldfish. And almost invariably, we taught her sign language a little bit. So she would do this to say, I'm all done. And, and she would get down. But before she would get down out of her chair as a toddler, She would always grab a couple of goldfish, she would take them in her left hand, she would hold them, she would put them over her heart, and then she would go and play with one hand for like an hour. She had a roadie. She was taking it to go. She was taking it with her. And so she was taking her goldfish with her. And Kelly and I were watching this, and we wanted to be like, Danica, do you know how many goldfish we have in this house? We shop at Costco. You should see the thing of goldfish that your parents have that we will be glad to provide for you at the right time. And so we're watching Danica run around that. And by the way, pulverized goldfish after an hour in a sweaty palm of a toddler is relatively disgusting. But I'm watching my daughter running around the house like this, and I'm like, is that how God feels with me? With us? that we just want to hold on to stuff. When God's like, I'm going to give you what you need. You don't have to live like this. It's true for us. It's true for us as we help to provide for others. God shops at Costco, friends. God invented Costco. And then Jesus says we are to pray to forgive us our debts. This is the Presbyterian, the right version of the prayer. There's also the other traditions that have like, you know, the trespasses and the sins. And depending on which passage you're looking at, the translation. It's always awkward too when you do a wedding or a funeral and you have like a mixed breed of uh, different denominations that are happening. And you wonder, uh, you know, you get to that awkward point of the Lord's Prayer where people just mumble their way through the trespasses, debts, sins, whatever, you know, kind of all through that one point. And you just kind kind of fake your way through that portion of the prayer. But the point is, is that we need help and we're asking for it. 
There's a true story from back in the time of the Revolutionary War that there was a, a pastor by the, by the name of Peter Miller who was in kind of a, a smaller community in Pennsylvania. He was really good friends with a guy by the name of General George Washington. And in his town, there was a guy who was a troublemaker and an adversary and an enemy and a struggle. And eventually that guy in this small town just stepped over the line one too far and uh, he got arrested uh, and was going to be put on trial for treason and was going to be given the death penalty, capital punishment. At first, Peter Miller was relieved because this guy drove him crazy. And then something didn't sit right with him. And so he rode, walk 70 miles from his small town in Pennsylvania down to Philadelphia where George Washington was and where that guy was going to be on trial. And he said to George, I think you ought to pardon him. And George said, look, I cannot pardon him just because he's your friend. To which Peter Miller laughed at the general and said, he's not my friend. He's my biggest enemy. To which George Washington said, you rode 70 miles to ask for the pardon of somebody you don't even like, it has been granted to you and to him. They rode back to their community together and by the time they got back to their town, they were no longer enemies. They were friends. Here's what you need to know. It is psychologically impossible for you to be aware of, knowledgeable of, living in the awareness of God's forgiveness for you and to be resentful. It is spiritually impossible. You cannot do both of those things at the same time. And so if there is a resentment, a jealousy, an anger, a hurt that cannot be forgiven in your life, the foundational level spiritual work that has to happen is that you clearly have not grasped and received the nature of God's forgiveness for you. That the forgiveness of sins and debts for ourselves and others go hand in hand. And then Jesus says, we are to pray this. Lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. A couple of weeks ago, I was with uh, a man that you're going to hear more about. His name is Justin Early, and he is an author, and we've recorded a series of podcasts that we're going to use to equip you for this series. And he told me the story of a time that he received a phone call from a dear friend at 6 a.m. in the morning. And he was kind of like teasing the friend who called him and be like, dude, it's really early. Why are you calling me at 6 a.m. in the morning? Forgetting the fact that his friend had been traveling abroad and was in the country of Mali in Africa. And this was the year 2015. I don't know if you recall the story of this Radisson Hotel and how there was a terrorist organization that was attempting to capture 170 people 
from that hotel, particularly Westerners. And that when he called his friend, he called to ask him for prayer, and he was on his knees praying with every piece of furniture that he had up against the door of that hotel room. Such was the nature of that friendship, such was the ask of that phone call and prayer. To be known to be a person of prayer such to the point that someone would call you if they were in that situation. The primary reason for prayerlessness in our society is that we have not come to terms with the fact that we are at war. That a battle rages on around us and that you and I can become incredibly flippant and, you know, amused and complacent, not realizing that the brokenness and the sinfulness and the hurt and the pain of this world is both self-inflicted and is in the face of a great darkness and enemy that needs to be combated. And that our battle is at times against flesh and blood, but that the greatest battle in the world is against the spiritual forces of darkness that would threaten to overtake us and to undermine us. And so the reason that we don't pray is because we have forgotten that there are tests and there are trials and there are temptations and that we are in a situation out of which we desperately need the deliverance and the salvation and the rescue of God. By the way, at the end of that story, with that man on his knees praying on the phone with his friend across the ocean, as they're praying together, hearing the horrors of what's happening on the other side, eventually a French soldier comes to the door of that hotel room, and he gets let out, and the French soldier says to him, You are with me. You are safe. Take my arm. Don't let it go. You want to know what prayer is? That's prayer. God saying, you're with me. You're safe. Don't let go. most interesting thing I learned about the Lord's Prayer this week, and many times I've prayed it, looked over it, known it. I had never seen this before. One pastor talked about it this way. He says, we have a tendency to pray the Lord's Prayer backwards. We have a tendency to do nothing and be completely complacent, and then all of a sudden something is wrong in our life or we're confronted with evil, and so we start to turn towards prayer. And then we realize something is wrong with us and that we desperately need help in our prayer and that we're lacking in something and so that we seek prayer. And so we seek to try to tap into God's kingdom and eventually find our way up to our Heavenly Father. And that this is the opposite of the way that God has instructed us in Jesus Christ to pray. That it begins with God. It begins with his character. It begins with our relationship and with who he is. 
and that we begin to work from our relationship with God into his kingdom to knowing his provision that he is going to forgive and reconcile all things and that evil doesn't stand a chance in the long run because God will vanquish it from this earth until the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of his Christ and that he shall reign forever and ever. That is the way that the prayer flows and we have a tendency to do it backwards. It drives me crazy, honestly, when as a pastor, people say things to me like, they came to worship, I didn't get anything out of worship this week. Or, I came to worship, I didn't get anything out of that message. Or, I didn't get anything out of that song, or whatever it is. It drives me crazy because it tells me you've got the wrong frame of reference. It's backwards. Paul Miller puts it this way. God does not want to be experienced. He wants to be known. I don't care, honestly, I don't care if you feel prayerful when you pray. It's not about an experience. Are you seeking to know and being known by the God of Jesus Christ, our Heavenly Father? Listen, you've done really well today. You've made it through this entire sermon without a single Dallas Willard quote, but that is about to change. (laughs) Dallas said that he grew up saying the Lord's Prayer at every meal that his parents had around their table. They said it every time. And he said he wasn't until he was in his 20s that he realized that the prayer wasn't just something you were supposed to write, it was something you were supposed to inhabit. And that God didn't just give us a prayer to parrot, although saying it repeatedly is helpful to keep it before our minds and our consciousness, even our imagination. The point is, is that you were entering into this prayer a prayer that Jesus started with his heavenly father thousands of years ago, a prayer that is still going on to this very day. And what Dallas would say is sometimes you need to paraphrase the prayer to keep it fresh. So maybe one of the activities for you is to rephrase it like he did. Dear Father, always near us, may your name be treasured and loved. May your rule be completed in us. May your will be done here on earth in just the way it is done in heaven. Give us today the things we need today. Forgive us our sins and our impositions on you as we are all forgiving all who in any way offend us. Please don't push us through the trials, but deliver us from everything bad because you are the one in charge. You have all the power and the glory too is all yours forever, which is just the way we want it. And then he writes this and Dallas was super stoic. He was just a philosophy professor. No, he just no strong affect or enthusiasm. Just the way we want it is not a bad paraphrase for amen. What is needed at the end of this great prayer is a ringing affirmation of the goodness of God and God's world. If your nerves can take it, you might occasionally try yippee at the end of your prayer. I imagine that God himself will not mind. Some of you need some extra giddy up at the end of your prayers because you have forgotten the goodness of God and the world that he is redeeming right now. And so this week, say the prayer. But don't just say it. 
inhabit the prayer. Let Jesus teach you how to pray. And so the one that we get to call Father, the one who has brought us near and is holy and magnificent, in the midst of the holiness of your presence, you invite us now to come before you to get to be a part of your ever-expanding and loving kingdom that will overtake the powers and the forces of this world. God, my will needs to be surrendered to your will right now. You are the one who will provide for me even though I cling to entitlement. Lord, help me to store up treasures in heaven, not here on earth. Father, we ask that you will not only give us our daily bread, but that you will forgive us. We are a people where it's not just stuff that's wrong in the world, there's stuff that's wrong with me. And will you take away all the resentment that I have towards other people? And will you forgive me from thinking that I am invulnerable to attack and to struggle, and so don't let me get in over my head Don't give me responsibility that I cannot handle. And deliver me and us from this world that is careening towards despair. Save us from the chaos, God. Because we know, God, that everything belongs to you. And that we now bend a knee and it is not about our kingdom, it's about your kingdom. That it's not about our power, we empty ourselves of our power, oh God. It's not about our fame, our renown, our recognition, or our glory right now, oh God, because it is all about you and about who you are. And so with the followers of every time and with every age, we are now, as your students, bold enough to pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.